Welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is our episode number 96, released on November 21st, 2018. If you haven't done so yet, subscribe to the podcast today on your app of choice, including iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or SoundCloud, and don't miss the new episodes. So today we will talk about BlaBlaCar and SNCF, about the Brexit deal, about period tracking apps and about Facebook's inner workings. We also have a pre-recorded interview with Simon Cook, the CEO of the VC firm Draper Esprit. We're also, as usual, going to talk about upcoming events and share books and stories we have come across recently. I am your host, Andrei Degeler, a tech journalist based in Amsterdam, joined today by Natalie Novik, our research analyst and feature writer. Hi, Natalie. How is it going? Hi, Andre. I'm doing well. Really enjoying the fall and going moving into the dark winter here. Yep. Same things going on around here uh, these days. Are you finally recovered after a Web Summit in Lisbon and the bad weather there? Not entirely recovered, and I think I'm going to get worn down next week with my captain duties at Startup Week in Dublin, but I'm really looking forward to it. So hopefully the great energy and spirit can buoy me a little bit for that week, but need to close down my travel schedule very soon. <laughs> right. So by the time the podcast goes out, it's going to be right in the middle of the week. So if you are in Dublin and listening to this, uh, go ahead, say hi to Natalie, buy her a drink or a coffee in the morning to keep her happy <laughs> and ready to do the duties. Right. And Irish coffee. <laughs> That, that that's a great alternative that's a great alternative and also combination of the two now let's talk about the last week uh, natalie how did it uh, go for the european ecosystem and deal flow within europe really a, a big red letter week for funding deals uh, we learned rovient sciences received a 200 million round nested in the uk raised 120 million pounds and blah blah car raised 101 million euros so lots of big deals more than 1 billion euros in investments announced last week so if you're interested in learning more about and getting more analysis on funding rounds in europe our paid subscription has all of them so check that out yeah, the week was the week was really amazing. So I'm uh, busy every Friday uh, with our uh, newsletter for our premium subscribers that uh, has all the deals uh, lined up together. And uh, I kind of noticed that the total number of the funding raised was just amazing. I haven't seen that in a long while. So about sixty deals, I think, uh, almost uh, ten M and A deals, and a lot of uh, other things happening. So if you're listening to this but not subscribed to our premium newsletter, I would definitely encourage you to do so if you want to stay up to date with whatever is happening across Europe. Now let's move on towards the stories and interviews of the week. I will start with my quick one. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about BlaBlaCar and its announcement that made part of this big 
funding number last week. So for those who don't know it, Blablacar is a ride-sharing scale-up, and this is one of the most well-known success stories coming from the French ecosystem. And the announcement it made last week is actually more like two announcements combined in one. First, uh, Blablacar is raising uh, 101 million euros in funding uh, from SNCF, the French national railway operator. Uh, the company leads the round, and there are also a, a few investors Investors uh, accept that. Uh, second announcement made by Blablacar is that the company has made a bid to acquire uh, another company called WeBus. Uh, from whom do you think? SNCF again. So WeBus is basically the bus division of the railway company uh, that connects uh, 300 European cities. It's not profitable yet, but it seems to be on the right path. In 2017, the company lost 36 million uh, euros, which is 10 million euros less than in 2016. Altogether, since 2013, I think it already lost uh, 165 million euros. But maybe with uh, Blablacar's leadership, it will get to the break-even point soon. To add some context here, it's not like Blablacar and SNCF just suddenly started doing things together. This relationship between the two has been going for some time. For example, in April, Blablacar and Webus already ran a pilot partnership under which they cross-promoted their respective offerings on each other's platforms. So basically, you could see bus routes on Blablacar and ride-sharing offers on Webus. It was done, first of all, to count the SNCF uh, personnel uh, strikes that made it really hard for uh, people in France to make it from one city to another. This is also what Blablacar plans to keep doing after the deal is closed. And in addition to that, the company also said that it will open up its platform to other local bus operators. In general, this makes a pretty radical departure uh, for Blablacar from its previous business model. Now, apparently, the company wants to become an ultimate travel booking platform and a marketplace for road travel across Europe. And it actually starts to compete with the likes of Flixbus, another uh, bus company, and other operators that offer uh, road travel across Europe. And as for the deal itself, uh, I would assume that it uh, involves cash and stock of both uh, Blablacar and SNCF. And if I were to oversimplify the announcement, I could say that probably in a nutshell, SNCF invested Webus in Blablacar. Of course, it's not that simple, but uh, you kind of get the point and the kind of synergy that... Uh, is created by this deal is a pretty interesting one. Natalie, do you often take a bus across Europe? I haven't in a while, but I in some places the bus services work really well, especially in the Baltics. But in Germany, the distances are really far. And while it's cheap to travel on Flixbus, it takes a really long time to do so. And it doesn't always get you right where you need to go. So more competitors in this space, I think, is a very welcome opportunity. Yeah, here in the Netherlands, we don't take buses that often either, but that's mostly thanks to a great uh, uh, railway network and uh, cheap and good and predictable uh, trains. But while I was living in the UK, in Bristol, I actually took the bus uh, to uh, London uh, pretty often because the trains there are A, expensive and uh, B, not exactly the most uh, convenient. And around London, there tends to be a lot of uh, issues with the railway network. Is it the same in Scotland? 
Well, I haven't taken the train too frequently, but I will be taking a long distance train next week from London to Edinburgh just to see how it goes. So I'll be better prepared to answer that after that point. Great. That must be a great experience. I also heard that, is it called National Express, the bus company in the UK? I think so. Uh, oh, no, that's that's Megabus and Megabus. And they have uh, sleeper buses uh, uh, with the actual horizontal kind of benches uh, where you can sleep on that go from London to, to the north to Edinburgh. I think actually some of my friends uh, took it before. So you oh, can consider wow. that alternative for your uh, for your trip. Yeah, that's something to look into. I know that there is a similar sort of bus that's going from L.A. to San Francisco. Um, and they actually have kind of like cocktails on the bus and the sleeping option. So it is something that I think there is a lot of appetite for, but be interested to see how, how that works out in reality. But getting around Edinburgh, the only real way to do so without driving is by bus. And it does take quite a long time. I think here to go distance of less than three miles this week took about 50 minutes on the bus. It's not something I, I choose if, if I had the choice. Right. Yeah, well, let's hope that uh, BlaBlaCar and WeBus will introduce something like that. I would try that even if just for fun. But while we are on the topic of the UK, Natalie, what is your take on the Brexit uh, draft agreement uh, just recently announced? Yeah, so that was really the big news here last week. And I wanted to dig a little bit into the draft agreement and what it means for the tech industry and for startups in particular. This is something we've been tracking for, for a little while. So the Brexit draft agreement was published and shared by the British Prime Minister, Theresa May, on the night of November 14th. So that was last Wednesday. And despite standing at 585 pages long, it seemed that almost immediately upon release, Everyone both for and against Brexit had this immediate opinion about it. And it hasn't been too easy to piece through the document and what it means for tech and startup entrepreneurs in the UK. But here's a start. And I just wanted to share some of the reactions to the deal. So just briefly, the draft Brexit agreement outlines the procedures and obligations around the UK's departure from the European Union, which is expected to take place on March 29, 2019. The agreement outlines a transition period until the end of December 2020, where existing EU regulations, budgets, judiciary and enforcement mechanisms will continue to apply within the UK. But as no longer a member of the European Union, the UK will not get a say on those obligations. So this transition period can be extended one time. And it also outlines in the short term that there'll be no hard border and customs union between Ireland and Northern Ireland. And the Brexit agreement also enshrines freedom of movement for the more than 3 million EU citizens currently living in the UK, something the UK has continually promised but has remained under question. So just to be clear here, just because there is a draft agreement doesn't necessarily mean that things are set in stone. EU leaders will have a chance to vote on the deal on November 25th, so working on a Sunday. But if approved, it will then go to British MPs to vote in Parliament. And that will probably happen sometime in December. A number of commentators have suggested that the Prime Minister doesn't actually have the votes to have this deal proceed, but we'll have to wait and see here. So the morning after the Brexit agreement was announced, Tech UK, not to be confused with tech.eu, um, a members association that represents 950 tech companies in Britain, 
shared their support for the agreement and encouraged MPs to confirm it. The tweet shared by Tech UK Fred, and I'll quote, the tech sector is calling on MPs to back the withdrawal agreement, end quote. So the inclusive nature of the comments were immediately seized upon by many in the UK tech industry, most notably by Mike Butcher, the editor-at-large for TechCrunch. He is one of the keen champions for a people's vote on the terms of the Brexit deal. Mike has been a passionate advocate against Brexit and one of the supporters for Tech for UK initiative, not to be confused with Tech UK, that has launched hackathons and lobbying activities across the country to encourage the tech community to raise awareness about the impact that Brexit will have on their industry. A number of other high-profile voices spoke out against Tech UK's uh, announcement, including investors at Seedcamp and elsewhere. The next day, Tech UK clarified their position with a thoughtful analysis that suggests the deal is certainly better than no deal at all. They said they were always remainers and have continually believed that staying in the EU is preferable to leaving it. While they support the deal, they highlight there remain a number of uncertainties of how Brexit will impact the tech community. But given the transition period, those things could be worked out. Whereas in a no deal situation, this would not be possible. So this transition period, in their view, is the most important benefit of the prime minister's deal. Similarly, they point out that the deal's protections on freedom of movement, which, while are not entirely sorted out, provide some clear safeguards for EU workers in the UK and UK workers in EU member states, many of which work in the tech industry. Tech UK has some further concerns about how certain digital services, data sharing, and the digital single market will fare after Brexit. These are not clearly outlined in the draft agreement, but they feel that the agreement in comparison to a situation without an agreement gives parties an important venue to negotiate these concerns in the future. From the beginning, the UK tech industry has generally been aligned against Brexit. However, at this stage, there lacks a general consensus of what to do now and what exactly can be done. In our See the Future report, we have gathered and shared many perspectives about what European and British tech entrepreneurs and investors think about Brexit and how it might impact UK tech and its position in the European tech ecosystem. What we find, and it's a reaction found by many others in European tech, is that despite the uncertain future, Founders and investors in the UK remain optimistic and some unconcerned, as Nicholas Cullen writes in Forbes about Brexit. Here, though, I, I wanted to make a prediction. Um, I've been asking European founders about Brexit for the past two years, and I expect that if things get bad in the UK after Brexit, founders will move and investors will choose to invest elsewhere. This is an industry where technology and innovation change very quickly. Founders and investors don't have time to wait until things get better. Startuppers and entrepreneurs are nimble and are continually evaluating their situation. If the UK messes this up, they will lose a generation of entrepreneurs and techies. And there are plenty of exciting startup ecosystems around Europe that will be happy to welcome them. That summed it up quite nicely, I guess. Yeah, I'm not sure I really like the stance of uh, Tech UK that they just say, yeah, well, whatever, let's just agree on something and then we will work on it. This is exactly the same thing that was said right after the Brexit vote. 
Like we we got a lot of time. We will have uh, a possibility to work on it. And uh, here we are right now with not that much having been done about uh, Brexit's impact on tech, but also on all the other aspects of life in the UK. So yeah, I do I do kind of agree with uh, with Mike on that that. It, I mean, something has to be done and uh, there has to be a lot of awareness across the board of what uh, kind of uh, consequences a deal, a current deal or no deal uh, Brexit would uh, bring uh, bring to the country. Right. And a lot of UK tech companies already are preparing for a no deal scenario. And so that's something that they are, 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 it's not a surprise for them that this is an actual possibility. So I think really kind of advocating that, you know, this is something that needs more democratic accountability, especially from the tech industry, um, is really important. And, and just tech UK doesn't represent the entire tech industry, but it speaks in ways that it sounds like it does. And I think that was really one of the, the key concerns that, that many of the critics um, had about, about that tweet and that announcement that they shared. As a journalist, I would really love to see uh, some of the briefings and maybe some planning documents of uh, big UK companies in case of uh, no deal Brexit. I think there is a lot of interesting things in there. Anyways, time to move on. And the next uh, thing on our program today is uh, the interview with uh, Simon Cook, uh, the CEO of the VC firm Draper Esprit, uh, recorded by our founding editor, Robin Wouter. This is a great uh, interview, uh, many interesting things. So I'm leaving you to it. Uh, listen through and uh, uh, come back in about 20 minutes. Hey, Robin Walters for uh, TechU, and I'm here at the Doha conference in London, sitting down with Simon Cook, who's the founder and CEO of Draper Esprit. What's Draper Esprit in a nutshell? Draper Esprit is a, a Silicon Valley-styled venture capital group. We invest in Series A, B, and C deals, uh, looking for the best global companies originating in all of Europe. Can you tell me when, why, how, where uh, Draper Esprit was founded? <laughs> So Stuart Chapman and I uh, co-founded Draper Spree 13 years ago. We both worked together at 3i in the 90s. So we've been investing together in tech in Europe for 25 years. And 13 years ago, we uh, decided to build our own group, really focusing on what we thought was the missing piece in, in European venture, which was, first of all, um, having Silicon Valley style ambition. Um, you know, when you, we all talk about America and now China all over the world, but the, it used to be 20 years ago, European entrepreneurs would think about getting to five or 10 million revenues. And it wasn't really, you go to the Valley and they think about changing the world and billions. So we wanted to have Silicon Valley style uh, levels of ambition and, and Stuart set three up in Silicon Valley. So he spent four years investing in the Valley. Uh, and we also wanted to focus really on the, to hit that ambition, you needed serious checks. So we've always been trying to focus on the, the bigger sort of 10, 20, 30, 40, $50 million checks which has you know, been the gap in Europe. There's plenty of places you can get one or two million. Always has been a great startup uh, environment in Europe. But if you really need a 20, 30 million pound proper risk check so that you can, you know, if it goes wrong, you don't get in trouble. You know, private equity guys don't really do that. Stock market doesn't really do that. You know, US venture does do that and in Europe. So we've always wanted to be able to write the biggest risk checks we can. So Series A mentality, Silicon Valley ambition, but 
the biggest checks we can. And it's taken us a long time to be able to send effectively a platform. What we realized is you can't just go and raise a billion dollar fund easily in Europe. The limited partnership model is not that popular here. But if you assemble lots of little funds into a platform, you can actually start to do some interesting things. It's taken us a long time to do that. But, um, you know, we're, we've got to the point now where we're investing between one or 200 million euros a year, probably in the top five in Europe. We don't have one big announcement about one big shiny fund, but we have so many different pockets of money that we combine into a co-investment platform that we're able to really make some serious commitments into the industry now. We're going to get back to the, the platform and structure uh, now. But I was wondering, because um, this is over a decade ago when the fund was set up, did you have any trouble finding ambitious uh, entrepreneurs, uh, enough of them at least to sort of uh, make the fund uh, going after a few years? Yeah, I mean, the number of companies that raise over $5 million in Europe, you know, is still very small. It's about 500 this year. It's been growing at 100 a year. Uh, so if you go back 10 years, there's probably only a few hundred deals. So yeah, there was, it, it's a chicken and egg problem, though, because people aren't looking for the money because the money's not there. But actually, I think, um, you know, it, it's also, um, it comes with time. Serial entrepreneurs, once, you know, we backed the ICERA team who uh, sold to uh, ICERA for 400 million to NVIDIA. Now they're doing Graphcore, uh, you know, and obviously, they're, you know, they're not going to do a 400 million exit this time. The next Start, you know, they're going to build a multi-billion dollar business. So there, there's always been pockets. I backed the Cambridge Silicon Radio team. And from day one, they wanted to go public and be an independent company and ultimately did that and went on, was acquired uh, in the very long term. But there's always been pockets of teams, but there's never been enough teams a decade ago. Today, there are many multiple serial entrepreneurs. The model's well known. And people are moving back out of the valley and coming to Europe. And if, you know, if you're a Catalonian entrepreneur and you want to bring your family up in Barcelona, you couldn't have done that a decade ago. If you wanted to build a tech business, you had to go to the valley. Today, if you want to build your business, you do it where your family is, where your culture is. And it's much more interesting. You know, Palo Alto is great, but it's, you know, it's not the city of culture. Um, you know, the Rosen Crown pub downtown Palo Alto has got styrofoam beams on the outside. That's not a proper <laughs> pub, right? <laughs> sure. Um, Ten years ago, we also didn't really have uh, what we have now, like crowdfunding accelerators, lots of micro VC funds. Um, so the early stage scene in particular has changed quite a bit, especially in the mature ecosystems in Europe. Yeah. How has that affected uh, the way that Draper Esprit works and sort of co-invest with, with these funds and different methodologies of raising funding? So funding, we believe, is people call like an escalator, an elevator. Um, you, you know, there's different... You never stop fundraising. People talk about an IPO as an exit, but an IPO is just swapping one set of shareholders for another. Company still exists, and so you know when you, a seed investment is exactly the same as an IPO. They're just capital raising stages, and we believe there's a there should be a, a, a connection between. There shouldn't be any gaps there. So there's lots of seed activity, angel activity, uh, lots of incubators. You know, I think even things like EF, which I think are wonderful because they go even pre-seed. And they, I started my first company at Manchester University when I was 19. I used to write computer games, and there was nobody really to tell me how that worked. I kind of had to figure it out. And I love how EF goes and finds really smart people who don't really know about entrepreneurship and they teach that. So even like pre pre company formation, we have these incredible opportunities. And all the way from that point through to, you know, the IPO and beyond now, there are sources of capital. And we, what we're trying to do with our strategy is just integrate all of those. So we do focus on the A and the Bs and we stretch into the Cs. Our shareholders are, uh, you know, the Bailey Gifford, the Invesco's Old Mutual or Marion as they are now, uh, a lot of sovereign wealth funds, the British government, the Irish government, the Chinese government. And these people all want to invest in big growth funds. So we can actually help them you know, put together 100, 200 million rounds with, with, you know, with them 
systems coming in later, uh, as we'll see more and more, we can do the A and B and C rounds. And then we found that there's incredible, amazing groups like Seedcamp and others, and there's still not that much capital in Europe, even though there's, you would think it, um, there's still not that much. We found lots of these funds were stuck a little bit over the last two years, particularly with Brexit and the IF kind of moving around in their strategy, uh, and nobody really certain. So we, we decided a year ago to set up a $100 million fund of funds that allows us to put a bit of money on all these seed funds. And so we can get, you know, we can work closer to them. We can see the next generation coming up. And so now we have uh, about 20 seed funds that we're, we're partner with. We see the companies coming through there. We can do the A and the B and the C's and then our shareholders can come in and do it in the D's and E's. And it's a completely linked up strategy. And, and it means that the companies are starting to be surfaced in uh, you know, to financial investors very early and the money's there. And our investors get to know our companies when they're young and then as they mature and grow, they've known them for a few years. So they're much more comfortable to write a bigger check later on. It's a very hybrid model. Um, the other interesting and unusual thing about Draper's Free that you didn't mention is that you're publicly listed. In fact, sure. you're publicly listed twice, uh, both in Ireland and the UK. Uh, can you tell us how that came about? Yeah. So again, uh, our strategy to be is to identify pockets of capital and combine them. Uh, limited partnership is not particularly super popular in Europe, as I said. We found when we analyzed the European data, we looked at every deal. We do it once a year and we look where the, the, the VC got their money. So was it a venture capital trust? Was it, uh, you know, was it a corporate? Was it a US fund? Was it a European limited partnership? And when you analyze all of that data, we found that only 10% of the money was in European limited partnerships. 10% was in US partnerships. There was about 30% in government institutions, about 10, 20% with corporates. But the biggest uh, amount of money coming into tech in Europe is from public markets who are doing private deals. So you get these one-off you know, deals into uh, like TransferWise, and the, but they're much bigger deals, right? So we realized that the bulk of the money is with people who are really interested in tech, but they're never going to do it in a 10-year partnership. So we, Stuart and I are X3i. 3i is obviously a FTSE 100 public company. Um, we bought 3i's venture business in 2009 when they exited. And so so there's always been this gap in the stock market. So we went out and spoke to a bunch of investors in the city. And we said, if we rebuilt a 3i, a, you know, a much cooler tech-focused venture capital style 3i, would that be of interest? And what we're trying to do is get that to you know, a multi-billion size market cap so that it can be self-financing. We can invest a few hundred million a year. Our long-term track record is 20% plus a year. So we can be generating two, three, four hundred million a year and paying dividends. And so we started with that as a vision. Um, it's hard to go out and raise a billion in an IP. So we raised 100 million in the week before Brexit is when we went public. Um, amazingly, uh, since then, we've grown to the market cap to about five, six hundred. But I think we can probably, you know, hopefully get to a billion organically and with some acquisitions along the way. Um, so, you know, it's what's the most exciting thing for me about it, though, is not the big investors. It's the fact that anybody can be a shareholder. And quite a lot of entrepreneurs have heard the story and have bought into this. So now when an entrepreneur comes and pitches us, quite a few of them have bought, you know, a thousand pounds worth of shares. And I have to give them an update on how their funds do. Doing, right. right, and it's great. I love the fact that we cut out all the middlemen. You want to invest in tech, invest, invest in us, and we invest in you. And all those layers of people taking fees you know, you, you've probably got a pension, you probably pay your pension advisor or something. You might have money in a startup through Index's fund, you'll never know because there's three, four layers of opacity where you can't see what's going on and everybody's taking a fee. Whereas everybody wants to invest in tech, and there's no way to do it. So, I love the fact that we're actually opening this up to entrepreneurs, to retail investors, anybody that wants to be a VC can be a VC with us by buying a share. Um, and so, it's a very kind of uh, democratizing uh, part of the model. Absolutely. And very interesting. Um, are there any downsides to being public as an investment firm? 
I'm sure there are. You know, we've thought through a lot of the issues having you know, worked at 3i in the past. You know, the markets come and go. You know, stock markets go up and down. Our shares were uh, trading up a while ago and the market's down. Everything's down now. And, you know, so you have to kind of not look at it every day and take a long term view. We are very conscious of disclosure issues. Um, we, we don't disclose any information about the companies. We aggregate the top 10 holdings and we give portfolios. So we, the, the aggregate portfolio grew at 40, 50 percent this year. We give averages uh, and, and people buy into that basket of 10 companies. We don't have disclosed individual positions or valuations, et cetera. So people get nervous of that. But that's, So we're able to keep the right level of privacy um, and that needs to be maintained. Timing is always an issue. We have to put our results out twice a year and, right. and we've always got lots of deals going on. So trying to get deals done before we put, you know, on that specific day is always a, a interesting <laughs> challenge. So we have a we have a few timing challenges. Um, but on the whole, I think the, uh, you know, as 3i, you know, 3i, FTSE 100, 9 billion pound company has been going for decades, you know, 50 years plus. Um, you know, these models can work if you deliver results. So obviously we're only as good as our deals and only as good as our portfolio. We're very fortunate that we've been able to assemble uh, through a bit of luck and a lot of hard work and thousands of sifting an amazing portfolio with companies like Trustpilot and Graphcore uh, and Ledger and uh, Mobidius, which we sold. And, you know, it's, I think that's, for me, all the VCs, there's some amazing VCs and, you know, obviously groups like Index have done phenomenally well and have been here for a long time and are, are the clear leaders. And you judge a VC by their portfolio. And uh, I think I'm very proud that I think anybody can take a look at what we've been able to assemble. Um, and, you know, that speaks for itself in the quality of the companies. And the interesting thing is half of those companies have now been added since the IPO. So it wasn't, we've had these for a long time. We've been able to continually build the team and add more and more companies. And so, yeah, we're doing probably 20 deals a year now. Uh, half, you know, younger companies and half the biggest deals. And, and our profile and our model is attractive because it becomes much more interesting to entrepreneurs to have access to the city by working with us. So working with Revolut, for example, part of that is because some of the city shareholders that we, we potentially can help bring later on when Revolut goes public or does a, a you know, uh, that, those type of th things in the long, in the long term future. Well, taking the conversation back to the, the startups that you back, uh, what do you typically look for in terms of geography, vertical stage that, that the companies are in? What would be like the average uh, ideal investment for you? Silicon Valley style A investments are sort of $10 million now. Everything's kind of gone up one, right? So what used to be uh, A rounds are now seed. What used to be B rounds are now A. So A's in the Valley are $10 million on average. That's the same in, in Europe now. So we're kind of doing Silicon Valley style. The average B round is $25, $30 million. And so we do half A rounds and half B rounds. We On A's, we like to partner. We're not trying to be the killer Series A brand. We like to partner with other VCs. We are really trying to be very focused. When we do an A, it's because we want to lead the B. So the reason why you bring us in on an A rounds is because we could, you know, do 5 million of it or 10 million of it, but um, we like to partner with the right people so that when you do your B around a year later, we can write a big check very quickly. And so that's, that's what we like to, we look for big ambitious companies. Obviously we're part of the uh, Tim Draper's global network. So we have offices and funds from, uh, from China, Mexico, Japan, Singapore, Brazil, all over the world. So we look for companies that want to go international, especially into the US and into Asia. We have strong links there so that we, we're not looking for local players per se. We're looking for the best global companies. Quite unique in our model is we've always, for 13 years, done 25% in deep tech and hardware. We've done 25% in digital health, 25% in consumer, and 25% in B2B SaaS. And that focus on semiconductor and hardware that a lot of people are scrambling to get back in now, we've been doing it for 13 years, and we've had huge success in, in that area. So the depth and knowledge that we have in some of those areas, and that leads us to do things like Ledger, where we instantly understand the value 
in a play like Ledger, which is, you know, is the software layer running on a hardware model. It was easy for us to understand having been in deep tech and in, in, in that kind of technology for, for over a decade. Right. And in terms of geography, um, looking at Europe, or where are some of the places that you look at right now? We look all over Europe. The um, Historically, pre-Brexit, the UK was probably sort of 45%, and then the other regions were a bit less. It's spreading out a bit more evenly now. Actually, it, the UK is still amazingly holding up by value at about 40% still. So um, I, I think of Amsterdam as a pivot point, and I kind of think one-third north of Amsterdam, one-third south of Amsterdam, one-third west of Amsterdam <laughs> is roughly how the market's going to go. And we kind of want to track the market. So we'll end up doing you know, 30 40 50%. You know, UK, Ireland, and then similarly regions. We're doing Paris is doing really well at the moment. A huge entrepreneurial uh, energy there, so uh, Paris is exciting. The whole of France, we're looking at deals. Um, we've partnered with Earlybird in Germany. They have a very strong team. And again, when you met, I always measure a VC by their portfolio. They're in N26. They're in UiPath. They're in Peak Games. They're in Smart. They have an amazing 20-year track record of getting in some great companies. So rather than sort of having to, you know, go and build that whole brand out in, in Germany, partnering with Hendrik and Christian and Fabian and the team has been fantastic where we can work with them on and, and, and double down on some of their deals. So that helps us. So effectively, we've got offices now in Munich, Berlin, Paris, London, Dublin uh, and Cambridge. Right. Are you also looking at some of the emerging ecosystems, so let's say Eastern Europe, maybe South Europe, Greece, Italy, if I can call that an emerging ecosystem, but yeah, for tech, I mean, you're certainly... From, uh, from a Draper network, we've, we've focused on uh, Eastern Europe. 3TS has done some of our uh, Draper network investing in, in the past, and we worked when Pekka was uh, here in town this week. We met Pekka. Um, early Bird also has uh, activities in, uh, in their Early Bird East Fund. So I think increasingly we'll start to see more of that deal flow. Obviously, Tim was you know, a big backer of Skype and on the board of Skype and... Uh, uh, and, and Steve Uvetson is uh, Estonian, so the, um, there's a there's a family legacy to that, some of those parts of the world. But yeah, we'll we're just looking for the smartest, most amazing entrepreneurs. And you know, Silicon Valley is a state of mind. It's it, the genie's out of the bottle. You know, just take UiPath. You know, it's the fastest growing company according to the press release that Sequoia's ever invested in, and it's in Romania, right? So there's mm-hmm. there's nowhere you can't find a hidden amazing opportunity, and and you don't have to go to the valley anymore to get that capital. It comes to you today, and that's the exciting thing. But I also love that I don't have to worry about what's going on in Tel Aviv or Beijing or New York or, or Silicon Valley because right. I've got partners there. I can pick up a phone. I can ask one of my partners what's going on, but we can really laser focus our 28 investment professionals on the European geography, right? And 28 people in about 600 deals, it, it's not hard to really try and get on top and conquer. And, and what's interesting is who's emerging as some of the leaders there. It's the multi-fund group. So you've got Partech with a multi-fund strategy. You've got ID Invest with a multi-fund strategy and us. I think the three of us were the most active by capital deployed last year. Then you've got some of the traditional, you know, Atomicos and Indexes and Bulletins and Axels, they're investing. But because they're investing more globally, uh, you know, and, and they have, have uh, single fund structures, but they're obviously spread more widely, you know, from a capital deployed point of view, they're the next tier down. So it's it, it's interesting to see less and known European groups, but who've, who've done a platform type strategy, really starting to to dominate. And if you go back to Silicon Valley, what's interesting is if you go back to the data in Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley looked exactly like Europe today. There were In, in mid-90s, there were like 800 stars startups and 200 growth deals. It looked like Europe uh, five years ago. And by the end of the 90s, they were doing as many growth deals as startups. And today, the US industry is pretty mature. It's 2,000 uh, sm- small deals and 2,000 growth deals. So you've, uh, if you raise an A round, you're going to raise a B round statistically in, in the US. For the first, and Europe has always been not like that, but the first time this year, I've just run the data. At the current run rate, we're at about 800 growth deals and 800 um, startup deals by the end of this year. So we might be at that tipping point where Europe now looks like the US in terms of growth versus startups. The really interesting thing is the, the funds that got big 
in uh, Silicon Valley in the late 90s, the household names. Sequoia and DFJ's funds are 150 million in the mid 90s, right? And then they got to the 600 and the 800s and they, they're there today. So our view is those funds that get into the billion dollar type uh, zone in Europe now will be the funds that will be here for 20 years. And 20 funds in the US get 50% of the money today. So I think there'll be 20 funds in Europe and they'll get 50% of the money for the next 20 years. And it's those of us that are scaling up and building the platforms that will be part of that and be household names, but you can't do it with a billion dollar limited partnership fund in Europe. It just doesn't work. Very interesting. Uh, you mentioned Balderton Capital. Uh, I was going to ask your opinion because they recently made an interesting announcement doing a, a liquidity fund to 1 billion um, for secondary rounds. Yeah. What do you think of that? Well, it's very clever. We did it 13 years ago. So, um, you know, we've, we've done, uh, we bought 3i, we bought Prelude, we bought Casanova, we bought so many venture funds over the time. We bought Seed Camp last year. We've been doing secondaries since 2003. Actually, KVS was the first secondary deal we've done. So, um, it's great to see other people doing it. Part of our strategy and why we went public is because we think that not only is the limited partnership thing hard to raise money for, but from an entrepreneurial point of view, you have to sell the companies in five years. You invest for five and you exit for five, right? They're 10 year funds. And in Europe, you can't really get out of that. Why would you, if you invested in a great company, get out after five years? You know, look at Tesla. Tesla is, you know, still, you know, was, uh, we IPO'd at 1.5 billion. Why would you sell at 1.5 billion when it's 50 billion today or whatever? So the, the, the whole model of not being able to give entrepreneurs flexible money for as long as they want. That's what we believe in. So we do tons of secondaries. We'll buy into a company, but we combine it all in one. So we don't we don't have a secondary fund that only does secondaries and a primary fund that does primaries. That's quite hard because when a deal comes in and the entrepreneur wants to sell a bit and he also wants to raise a bit of money, which fund do you do it in? We have a platform that we can create a solution. So if, you, if the entrepreneur wants some liquidity and he wants a growth round, we can do that. Um, if one of his investors wants to sell out, we can buy that or we can buy the whole fund, right? So we have a completely flexible platform. I kind of think it's like Warren Buffett. If he could only buy on IPO and had to sell his holdings after five years. I don't think Warren Buffett would be the richest man on the planet. He's not quite there anymore. But, you know, by having a flexible approach, buying into good companies when you want to in any way you can and holding them for as long as you can, it's got to be superior return. So I, I think it's great to see other people copying secondaries. It's not new. Um, they did a great job on the on the press. <laughs> uh, and we love Boulderton. We do you know, many deals together. Um, we're closing another one this week. Um, so we do lots with Boulderton. It's great. But the secondary model has been around for a long time. Um, and it's great to see other people coming and doing more of it. Yeah, great. Uh, maybe final question just to include a much bigger picture question, but where do you think Europe has an edge when it comes to technology, let's say in the next five, 10 years? So what's the, the interesting sectors or, or, or pockets in terms of geography going to be? I think at the very highest level, one of the biggest issues facing tech in the next 10, 20 years is the interface of government regulation and, uh, and innovation. If you go back to the 1920s and 30s, when radio and television came out, they were seen to be so powerful that they were licensed and regulated, and they were carefully considered how those powerful tools were evolved. In the last 20 years, we kind of invented an even more powerful medium, and we just threw it out there and see what happened. And we created these monster, out-of-control kind of privacy issues. And, and, and so there's, there's a danger, a massive clampdown and pushback by government. Going forward, you think about autonomous vehicles. You can't just put autonomous vehicles on the road and let them drive around and people, right? That can only be done in partnership with regulation. And what's fascinating is why is the fintech revolution in London? It's down to the, you know, the, some of the policies that the Cameron government were putting in place in terms of crowdfunding being legalized. We have one of the most amazingly 
open-minded but proper professional regulatory uh, financial markets here, right? You can't do crowdfunding still in America. You couldn't do a listed venture fund in America. What we do is not legal in America, right? right? So the fact that we have really open-minded, innovative financial regulators here has enabled the fintech revolution. So if you think of, if we do a similar thing in autonomous vehicles, in AI, so we're not going to be able to have free innovation for the next 20 years. We're going to need to work with governments, but this government here and across Europe, we can, you know, GDPR is a good example. We can start to do things that will give us an advantage in that sense. So that's a very important issue, I think, and people don't really understand how that's going to evolve. But the days of politics and government not being involved in technology, that's over. We have to think about these issues. Um, You know, we've always been fantastically good at writing small code. I I joke, but, you know, America's a land of infinite resources, right? They they have muscle cars and V8 engines and big computers. And we had Sinclair Spectrums and and microcars and and the Fiat 500, right? And so we've had a lot of people on a very small part of the planet with not much resources for hundreds of years and we make the most of things so our engineering approach to solutions is efficiency led and i'm generalizing that but you know americans tend to be you know kind of horsepower led and 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 throw resources at it and so ultimately in a land and eight billion people on the planet resource and efficiency become much more important than just throwing power at something right so i think we have some inherent that's why games industry you know the, i used to write computer games the games industry was in europe and then hollywood production values came in and it went to hollywood and then it went back to mobile games and tight code and clever coding and it went back to Europe again. So I think it's similarly, things like wireless technologies, um, we have leadership. I think in AI, we have some leadership and uh, there's lots of reasons to be positive. But for me, the biggest one is that countries here can do things together with government if we create the right framework. And you know that's why fintech exists, not because of entrepreneurs. It's the entrepreneurs combined with the opportunity that the, the, the regulation allowed them to do. Well, very interesting observations. Thank you so much for sharing insights and best of luck with your history. Thanks, Robin. That was great. Hello again, welcome back to our podcast number 96, released on November 21, 2018. It's still me, Andrew Degler, with Nat Ilinovic, and we are still talking about the news and announcements from the past week in the European tech ecosystem. Now it is time to talk about the events. Uh, Natalie, you just said you were going to uh, Dublin. Uh, what is it that you're going to be doing there and what else is going to happen uh, within the next few weeks? Yeah, so I'm really proud to be judging Startup Weekend in Dublin and also to be the track captain for the Entrepreneurship 101 track at Startup Week Dublin. And it's the first time that Dublin has had Startup Week and it's everyone's really excited. We have over 40 fun events planned with lots of different partners and I'm really excited to spend some time in the ecosystem and, and give back because it's just a great time to really encourage entrepreneurship and early stage companies and Startup Week is a great way of doing that. But this week, I also wanted to highlight uh, Baltic Sandbox's demo day and on that's taking place on the 22nd and the 23rd of November. Baltic Sandbox is a new fintech accelerator in Lithuania, a, company, a country that's really done a lot of interesting things policy-wise to develop their, their fintech regulatory environment. And Baltic Sandbox is a com- the country's first fintech accelerator. So I'm really looking forward to seeing some of the interesting companies coming out of that program. And they have companies participating from Lithuania, of course, but also Russia, Belarus, Australia, and Ukraine taking part. So that is sounds very exciting and very neat. So I'm going to be following along there. 
Next week on November 29th, I'm really excited to go to the inaugural Scottish Startup Awards. I'm proud to also be judging there. And I think it's going to be a great time um, and a great way to bring the community together. At the end of the year, in a number of ecosystems, there tends to be a lot of award shows and different types of celebrations. And sometimes people, I get the sense, kind of slag them off and kind of say, well, what's the point of kind of awards? Like we all need to be getting back to work. But I think it's also an important opportunity to really bring the ecosystem together and hopefully in in one room and get everyone together. Um, And if someone is investing in the community, really trying to create something and give back, to bring people together. I think it's in our interest as community members to support that. So I'm really happy to take part in that as well. So these events and more are on our website. And if you have a suggestion to add, let us know on in our show notes, there's a link for a type form and you can fill that out and we'll share your event on our podcast. Yes, please do. There are more and more tech events uh, happening uh, around Europe and uh, uh, the information that you send us through that form is really helping both ourselves and everybody coming to our website to navigate around all these events. And and importantly, we can't share all the events on the podcast. So those events are shared in our weekly newsletters and our premium subscribers get access to all of those events, but they are on the site. So if you're looking for something to do, um, there definitely is so many things that, that you can take part in and I encourage you to have a look. Yeah, there's so much more than we can talk in a podcast of any length uh, every week. We, we would just take about an hour uh, to only list uh, everything that's happening around. So check out our events, uh, uh, our events page on the website. Uh, check uh, what's uh, going on. There is so, so, so much. Now, moving on again, uh, next part, uh, the recommendations of uh, books and stories and podcasts and whatnot that we have uh, stumbled upon and really wanted to share with all the listeners. I will start. And uh, today I wanted to quickly share uh, with you two interesting feature stories uh, from last week. So the first one that made a lot of ripples around is the piece uh, run by the New York Times called Delay, Deny and Deflect, How Facebook's Leaders Fought Through Crisis. Uh, You probably have read it already. If you haven't, I do encourage you to go ahead. It's a deep dive into how Facebook's top executives approach the crisis the company has been in the middle of over the past year. Uh, there are a lot of details of uh, how Sheryl Sandberg in the first place, but also uh, Mark Zuckerberg uh, downplayed the Russian meddling in the American elections. And it's also really fascinating uh, to be able to better understand how the largest social network of today works under the hood. There there are some interesting accounts of uh, certain conversations uh, taking place between different people on Facebook at Facebook, and it is absolutely fascinating. Uh, go ahead and check that on the New York Times. And the other piece is uh, one uh, written by uh, Caitlin Tiffany on uh, Vox.com titled Period Tracking Apps Are Not For Women. The author makes an interesting point uh, that most of uh, today's uh, period tracking apps are not there to help uh, cycling people track their cycles, but rather for the marketers to make more money off them. So there are tons of incorrect assumptions in these apps, lack of important features, insufficient attention to the security of the sensitive data, and that's a really sensitive health data that they get from the users. So check out the piece. It's uh, really interesting. It includes uh, uh, some 
scientific evidence, uh, talks and conversations uh, with uh, academic people who researched uh, how these apps work and uh, how they use the information. So kudos to Caitlin for writing this uh, on Vox.com. Uh, check out the link in the show notes. Uh, Natalie, what is your today's recommendation? Yeah, and after kind of those um, very ethical um, stories and and really kind of concerning the ethics around technology, I try. I wanted to to have something maybe a little more positive. And my suggestion this week is the Startup Notes podcast, and it's really a delightful podcast. And it's also a video series um, that's produced in Berlin and shares insights from a number of European founders and investors. And what I really like about it is it's European focus and really highlighting people that have built and made things in Europe. Um, and it works hard to impart lessons that provide strong takeaways for the listeners. Um, and as the, the podcast is set in Berlin, but they also travel around, um, many of the discussions thus far are with German founders and investors, which I think is great because they're, they're all in English and I think they should be known more widely. And there's some great stories um, and, and advice to share as well. And something that I've often heard in my interviews and discussions with European founders and ecosystem builders is that many of these success stories and inspirational features on tech blogs and publications or the ones that tend to be celebrated um, are often about founders in North America or ones that have gone to Silicon Valley more specifically. But as we all know, there are great things happening here and maybe we don't highlight them enough. So Startup Notes is attempting to do this and does a great job um, to share the knowledge more broadly. Um, and I really appreciate what they're doing. So there's another podcast that has a very similar aim, and it's called the Scaling Startups Podcast. And that's done by Stripe's head of startup growth in the UK. Um, and it's just getting started with six episodes thus far, but it has a great lineup. Um, and you can find the links um, to both of these podcasts in our show notes. So check them out. Okay. Duly subscribed to both. Uh, I hope I will have time in next week to uh, listen to some of them while I'm uh, traveling. Uh, now this I guess is time for us to wrap it up. This is it for today's podcast. I really hope you have enjoyed listening to us today. Do not miss our new episodes. Subscribe today on your favorite podcast app, uh, including Spotify or SoundCloud. Just look for tech.eu podcast. Also please leave us a review on your podcast app of choice. This will help others find it and will mean the world for us do it now if you can get your phone out of your pocket or of your table and uh, just write whatever you think about what we're doing here also please feel free to tell everyone you know for whom it is relevant about the podcast and follow our updates on twitter at tech underscore eu and on facebook please feel free to email us with any suggestions questions opinions at uh, andri at tech.eu and natalie at tech.eu natalie thank you so much for joining today safe uh, travels uh, and uh, talk to you really soon sounds great thanks for having me bye bye bye